If you would turn with me in Luke's Gospel to chapter 10, we will be reading out of Luke chapter 10 tonight. And we'll just be in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10, so if you uh, find that in your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a house and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So Luke chapter 10, uh, we have finally broken through from uh, concluding chapter 9, uh, and the text that we open to tonight is undoubtedly familiar sounding to you. Uh, because this opening is the exact same way in which chapter 9 of Luke's gospel opens up. and has very similar emphases, very similar themes, but it has uh, some particular nuances, uh, and that is a particular expansion on the kind of judgment and rejection language that we see here in the text. If you wanted to have one main idea for the text tonight to kind of hold out in front of you, uh, it is about the nearness of God's kingdom, the nearness of God's kingdom. And I just want to point that uh, into your mind so you have it there, and we're not going to go there right away, but uh, you'll notice in verse 9 and in verse 10 and in verse 11, uh, there is this uh, series of possible outcomes, those who reject and those who respond favorably to the message. And you notice that in both cases, in verse 9, those who accept and receive the kingdom of God, you are proclaimed that the kingdom of God has come near. And even in the case of those who reject the kingdom of God, you are to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. So the central theme, the central emphasis of this text is the nearness of God's kingdom. Now, we begin back in verse 1, where you kind of see that same appointed message, that same anointing that goes out to these 72. And this is just how chapter 9, verse 1 opens up where you see that Jesus appoints the 12 apostles and sends them out two by two into the surrounding villages and towns. He sends them before him to prepare the place, uh, and he sends them essentially to preach the kingdom of God. So why does Luke then tell us about this account, where he sends out a different group of people, uh, 72, uh, it says 72 others in the ESV, uh, different people who are not part of the 12 uh, to do essentially the same mission? Wouldn't the 12 have accomplished that? Well, uh, part of understanding why Luke includes this would be part of understanding Luke's motivation for writing his gospel account. So if you have a broad scope of the gospels, right, you have the synoptics and you have John's gospel. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. On the one hand, they kind of have the relatively same storyline, relatively same events. A lot of the same actions are repeated in those. And then you have John's gospel. And in the case of each of the gospels, you can discern their primary motivation for why the author wrote the gospel, who they wrote to, and what is the case that they're making. Now, in the case of Luke's gospel, 
Luke is arguing that the gospel of God is not just the good news for the Jewish people, it's also the good news for the Gentile people. It's the good news for all who are in the world. And he, he sets this out by first writing to a Gentile called Theophilus, and then he writes uh, after being discipled by Paul, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And Luke is building his case in several instances in his gospel, depicting Gentiles as being favorable responders to the kingdom of God, and the Jews being the one who reject the kingdom of God. Now, that is something Luke draws out and emphasizes. And here, he, he includes an account of these 72 who are appointed to go out and to proclaim God's message. And Luke is doing something here, which you might not discern at first, but he's making a reference to something that happens in Genesis chapter 10. Now, in your Bible, you might have a footnote uh, where it says 72. It might also read 70. And the reality is, if you were to take all the manuscripts that we have of, of the New Testament, the various translations, all of the ones in different languages, and you were to weigh the evidence, you'd have a 50-50 split between 70 and 72. And there's no way to tell which one is the most original reading, which is why in your Bible it tells you, hey, we think it's 72 in the ESV, some other translations go with 70, and they put you in the footnotes, hey, by the way, this other one is a totally viable option as well. They're both equally viable. Neither of them changes the meaning. And the difference between 70 and 72 is the difference between manuscripts that are written in Greek and those are, that are written in other languages. In the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the Genesis chapter 10 account, the Table of Nations, records the, na the number of nations in the world as being 72 total nations. Whereas all the other languages that we have record that as being a 70 number. And those are the Hebrew manuscripts that we have for that account. So all the New Testament manuscripts that are using the Hebrew base text record 70 as the table of nations for Luke's gospel, and all of the ones that are using the Greek record 72. The point is the same. They're changing the language intentionally to connect this event here to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, if you uh, fix in your mind's eye the, the fall and redemption story in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 10, you have... The, the judgment of God on the people of the world, particularly him saving Noah and flooding the world. And then you immediately after that have this table of nations, this account of all the people who descended from Noah. So Noah has sons, his sons have sons, his sons' sons have sons. And it all comes out to 72 total nations. And right after that, Genesis 11, is the judgment of God on the nations by splitting them into various languages. Luke is connecting... Jesus' mission on earth through his messengers, through his 72, to the undoing of that judgment in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. That judgment initially starts to become undone by the work of the apostles, the message of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the one who's going to reunite the nations, put them back together, not through some arbitrary means, not through some fake kind of peace, but through the peace that he proclaims via the kingdom of God. They need to be unified. How can they be unified? not by compromising, or not by one of the nations dominating the other nations. They can be unified by one king sovereignly ruling over all the nations, and all of those nations bowing the knee to that king. So Luke is putting this in your mind when he says there's 72 who are appointed, and they're appointed to be sent out two by two, and this is an intentional choice. Luke includes the number for a reason. He's an intentional author. He could have left this out, but he includes it because he's making an argument that this is the undoing, at least at first, of what happens in Genesis 10. Now that's not strange for us to assume because actually Luke goes further in Acts. He argues that Pentecost is the undoing of the Tower of Babel itself where you have the nations divided by language and then at Pentecost you have all the nations coming together and everyone can understand the gospel in their own tongue, in their own language. How? God's Spirit is working to put people back together and languages won't divide them, cultures won't divide them. They will be unified under God's kingdom. So Luke starts his argument here. He's going to continue to expand it, but you see it kind of poke out here at first. It's a reference to Genesis 10 and 11. So Luke is telling us Jesus has commissioned 72, and he's commissioned them out ahead of him. They're going to go two by two. This is kind of the same exact instruction we got in uh, Luke chapter 9. They're going to go ahead of where Jesus is about to go. Now this is different because in Luke chapter 9, the apostles go to places that Jesus has not gone. And you see the effect of that ministry being basically Capernaum and Judea because Herod is the one who reflects on the impact of that ministry. 
But here, uh, it leaves the, the door a little bit more open. We're not told where they're going. There's 72 of them, so there's more of them. It's a more expansive mission. And then he gives them this commission or this, this statement in verse 2. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So what's Jesus saying there? He's using an illustration, a picture. This is not an uncommon means of illustration for Jesus, right? If you think about agricultural references, you can think about the tree that bears good and bad fruit. Uh, you can think about John the Baptist talking about the tree that is going to be cut down if it doesn't bear the appropriate kind of fruit. Uh, you can think about John the Baptist talking about the wheat and the chafe, which may or may not, uh, or, which are separated in, in the judgment. And, and elsewhere, Jesus has already told us that there's this sower who sows his seed. The seed falls on various kinds of soil. So these agricultural references are abundant in the parables of Jesus. And here he's using this not as a, a parable, but more of a picture. And he's saying there is a harvest. There is a master of the harvest. And there are workers who till the field to bring in the harvest. And in this picture, he's saying you have to pray to the Lord of the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So the laborers in this are the 72 who were just sent out. They're commissioned out to pray for more workers to go into this harvest. And then who's the Lord of the harvest in this metaphor? Well, if you're just reading Luke's gospel and you don't have the rest of the council of the New Testament, you might say, this is God the Father. And yes, that is true, except that Jesus also positions himself as being one with the Father and being his ambassador on earth and being of like nature with him. And so, not only is it God the Father, but it's also Jesus, and it's also the Holy Spirit. They are the Lord of the harvest. And Jesus is saying, in effect, the harvest is plentiful, and I'm sending you out into the harvest. But you need to pray to me so I can send more people into the harvest. Now, this is a strange thing that Jesus has just said. Because he's telling us that he has a willingness to give more laborers into a harvest, that there's a harvest pregnant with people who need to respond to the gospel, and yet there is a human duty to pray to God and beseech him for additional workers for his harvest. Now that's a rather strange thing unless you have a category of mystery where sovereignty and human responsibility can interact together and not contradict one another. We have it here in the text where Jesus is both sending out 72 ambassadors. He, he hasn't appointed everyone who he's been discipling, he could have done that. He could have sent angels into the harvest. He could have sent whatever he wanted to in there. He just sent 72. And then he tells them to pray for him for more laborers. So this mission is not just a mission to go reap a harvest, but it's also a mission to bring about more people who will then also be workers into the harvest. So one of the effects of the harvest is you'll have God's people brought to him, gathered together. One of the other effects is you're going to have workers of those people who will be ministered to, who come to faith in Christ and also become workers themselves and labor in the fields. It's kind of the picture. That the harvest is so plentiful and the laborers are so few that there needs to be more laborers who are raised up. And you, you kind of see this in, in the Gospels and you see this in the book of Acts and you see this in Paul's writings. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, what I have taught to you, you should teach to faithful men and make sure they're faithful or else they're not going to teach anyone else. The whole point, you have to propagate this message that you've been entrusted with. Why? Because I entrusted it to you. And why? Because I was entrusted with the message. And this is kind of how discipleship works. This is how evangelism works. That of that harvest, there are people called uniquely to the ministry, uniquely to the vocation of propagating that evangelistic ministry. Now, that is, I think, in this case, a unique appointing. And we know that there is a harvest and there's also laborers in that harvest. But I don't think it's a far-off step for you to, as, as just a, a Christian who might not be called to pastoral ministry or vocational ministry, to see yourself in some way in this group of apostles, right? It's not the 12. It's not the apostles who teach doctrinally and have authoritative uh, commands from God. It's not, those, it's not that group. It's, it's this other group that goes alongside and underneath the ministry of the apostles, and they teach the same message. They share the same good news, and they are, they are charged with the propagating of the mission. And that's not all that different from at the end of Matthew's gospel where he says, go into, go into all the nation and make disciples, right? So this mi mission is what we would call the spearhead pioneer effort of all the missions that would come later by all of the Christians who would follow in the footsteps. And that's just not vocational pastors or uh, missionaries. This is anyone who calls himself a Christian is part of this category of discipleship. 
And this is one of the reasons Luke includes this here in his account, because in Luke chapter 9, he's just finished telling us all about what it means to be a disciple, right? Last week we, or sorry, two weeks ago, we saw the different kinds of negative responses to discipleship. People who are called by Jesus and who have various reasons for not partaking in the ministry or in the mission in the same way that they, they are being called to, right? Uh, don't set your hand to the plow and look behind you, right? There's, there's all these pictures of someone who's a disciple but not really engaged in the work as they ought to be. And that's the conclusion is that's not a real disciple. That's not someone who's honest, honestly responded to the message. But here you have this picture, if you will, of the same kind of thing. But in this case, the disciples, those who are here partaking in the harvest, the workers, they're to propagate more workers. And so all who are in the harvest, all who are part of God's kingdom are to propagate this same message forward. It's kind of the thrust of it, that to be a disciple is not only to, to empty yourself and take on uh, the cross that you bear, uh, it's not only to follow after Jesus, whatever he says, it's also to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God wherever you might go and in whatever way God has called you to do that. Now, that doesn't mean for everyone it's the same. Uh, the point is there's going to be variety, but there is some burden for every Christian to share the gospel in whatever context, situation, relationships that they have access to. So we, we not only go out into the harvest ourselves, but one thing we also do is we pray to God for additional people to be called, whether to full-time vocational ministry or to the missions field or uh, to be called to share the gospel to their coworkers, we, we pray for that on a regular basis as Christians. It's one of the things that Jesus teaches us to pray for, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus could raise up workers in whatever way he pleases, but the way he is pleased to do it by his own revelation is by us praying to him and him answering our prayers. God has both sovereignty over how salvation occurs and, uh, and, and what that salvation will accomplish. And he has said, on the one hand, he is intending to save people in this world, and on the other hand, that that salvation will be mediated by his workers in his missions field, and that those workers will be called up by other workers praying to him and him calling up new workers. He's told us how it works, and our job is to uh, speculate a lot less and pray a whole lot more. It's kind of the, the thrust of this. So then he, he kind of moves this uh, thing forward and he says, now, what is your specific mission? Go on your way, for behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And then verse four, don't carry for yourself a money bag or a knapsack or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. And whatever house you enter, say to it, peace be on this house. Now, this declaration is, this is the essential message that they carry. The message they carry is an offer of peace for wherever house they go to. So Jesus is sending out these people with, a, with an offer, peace. Now the question is whether that house that, that they come to is going to receive that peace or reject that peace. Now, what does it mean to receive or reject the peace? Well, we see at least there's a category of people. And in verse 6, uh, there's the possibility of someone not responding favorably to that. It's not really telling us how. It just says, uh, first, there's going to be possibly a son of peace that is there, and your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will be returned to you. So there's two kinds of outcomes in this case. There's the offer of peace and then two possible responses, either a rejection or an acceptance. And in the rejection case, you're going to see later, that's a very bad and dire circumstance. And in the acceptance case, there's this abiding confidence that peace is a real thing for the disciple. Now, once, once again, there's a question that comes about, which is Jesus's mission is willing for all to have peace with him. And on the same time, there's this reality of a category of people that don't have peace with him and reject his offer of peace. How is that possible? I want you to fix that in your mind. We're going to get there when we get to verse 13, but I'm asking that question now so you can chew on it. So there's two possibilities. There's the offer of peace. And then you see uh, this, this reality or this command to the people who are sent. Uh, if, if they're accepted by the house, they're supposed to stay eating and drinking because the labor is worthy of his wages. And when they enter a town and their town receive you, you eat what is set before you. And in verse 9, you heal the sick in it and you say to them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this is something in that spearhead evangelism, that spearhead ministry of the gospel, the kingdom of God's proclamation, you have this, this confirmation of the message by 
signs, and wonders. We've talked about this before in Luke chapter 9, that this, the 12 are bestowed God's authority, and they're bestowed that authority in the manifest work of healing, signs, and wonders. That's what they get as a means of showing, hey, this message that I tell you is a real message that you can listen to. It's not some fake thing that I cooked up somewhere in a back room. It's a real message. And it's a one you can believe and you can trust. How can you believe it and trust it? I can heal people. I can heal people in an undeniable way. That's how you can trust my message. The same power is here given to the 72. Verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. So if they're hearing your message and they don't know whether to trust you or not, perform a miracle, perform a sign, perform a wonder, heal them, and they will know that it is in fact a verified message that you proclaim truth to them. This is how Jesus verifies his own ministry to those who doubt his, ministry, his mission's work, right? When he calls Lazarus out from the grave, the conclusion is, let's put Lazarus to death because that is evidence that Jesus is actually telling the truth. And we don't like the message, we don't like him telling the truth, and so we've got to kill Lazarus, dispose of the evidence, so that people will, won't believe him, because there's no evidence in favor. So the, the healing ministry is part of this evangelistic proclamation. Now, one of the things that you might notice, in the, in, at least throughout church history and even today, that that healing ministry is not something that necessarily corresponds with the advancement of the gospel. Now, you might say, well, it could possibly correspond to the advancement of the gospel. And I would posit to you that we have a different validating miracle, which, which uh, it verifies everyone who proclaims it. So the validating miracle that we have today is not healing or signs and wonders that we perform. It is the preservation of God's teaching through the inspiration of God's word. And the miracle that that word has been preserved and kept and, and provided for and attested to and throughout all the ages passed down, that miracle is one that verifies all of God's teachers. How? If they teach and their teaching is in line with the word of God, they are a true teacher. And if they teach and their word is not in line with the word of God, that is a false teacher. You don't have to listen to them. That work, the work of Jesus' teaching passed down in the New Testament and the Old, the, the, the teaching of the, the church preserved in the scriptures, that is the validating miracle that validates all other teachers after the scriptures have come to completion. Before you have the benefit of that canon of scripture, before you have that uh, teaching, that truth, before you have that, you need these other means of God validating his teachers. You need Moses to do wondrous signs so the people of Israel will know to follow him and not some other people. You need Elijah and Elisha to come and provide wondrous signs like calling fire down from heaven. Why? So they know to follow that guy and not the false prophets. Those wondrous signs are no longer needed today because we have the scriptures. We have the full counsel of God's word preserved and attested to. Now that's not something that is without basis in the New Testament. We see for instance, Paul, when he talks to the Galatian church, he says, even if I myself or an angel for heaven would teach to you a gospel contrary to the one which you initially received from us, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter if I come back and I contradict myself. It doesn't matter if an angel from heaven comes. It doesn't matter what you see or what you hear. That initial message that you heard, this is your source of validation. This is your litmus test. You see the same thing in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Ephesians, that the church was founded on the basis of the apostles and the prophets. They lay the foundation, and everyone else is building upon that foundation. So that, once that foundation has been laid, then everything else is built upon that foundation, but we're not expanding or relaying the foundation over and over and over again. We're merely building upon it. So the single validating miracle that we have today is teaching in alignment with the truth of God's word as recorded in the scriptures. That's different than the validating miracle they have here, which is to heal and to, and to heal the sick. And uh, in some cases, they can cause dead people to rise up. You see that in the New Testament in Acts. So the, the apostles had real power and the Holy Spirit had real power. And it was bestowed on these people in their spear front uh, mission journey. But after that was initially trodden and after that gospel message has been proclaimed, our validating test is whether our testimony aligns with that initial testimony. So they go, they proclaim this, they heal people, they perform these signs and wonders, and then you still have this reality of someone rejecting the teaching of the kingdom of God. Verse 10, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into his streets and say that even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
And then he's going to come with a concluding judgment. I'm going to leave verse 12 and group it in with uh, verse uh, all the way through 15. I think those judgments are kind of all in one mind. But what you see here is something we already saw in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, where you see uh, if they reject you, if they don't receive you, if the town doesn't reject or if the town doesn't accept you, what should you do? You should take your sandals and you should shake the dust off the sandals. And we talked at that time, this is a, a declaration that you are outside of the kingdom, that you are unclean, you are not part of the kingdom of God. Now at this point, uh, that becomes even more clear because not only are they supposed to shake the dust off their sandals, while they're doing it, they're supposed to interpret what that means on the fly. So they're doing it and they're proclaiming judgment. He doesn't say, uh, do this in a private corner, you know, do this as you're leaving the town. He says, go into the streets, that's like, go into the town square and do this. Pronounce judgment on the whole place and let them know that they are outside of my favor. Verse 11, this is the judgment. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. So he, they're narrating out loud what they're doing. And then they say, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So they're shaking the dust off saying you're outside of the kingdom and at the same time saying that the kingdom has come near. Now that becomes a real problem for people who are outside of the kingdom. What's inevitable in this passage, the reality, is that the kingdom of God is near and is coming near and is ever encroaching onto the forces of darkness. You're going to see next week how the disciples or the, the 72 who are sent out reflect on this mission that they're doing right now and say, we actually saw our hand advancing against Satan and his forces of darkness. This is a spiritual warfare that's being fought. Territory is being gained by God's kingdom. And so what they, they're declaring out loud, the kingdom is inevitably coming. It is encroaching on your doorstep. And that could either be good news or very bad news. It could either be a message of peace or it could be a message of rejection and woe. It depends on the response that you have to the kingdom of God. So the kingdom is inevitably coming near. Now, the kingdom encroaching, the kingdom coming near, the kingdom imposing onto the force of this world... Uh, this is part of Jesus' mission. His first time, he comes and he offers peace, and he says he's going to come a second time. And when the second time comes, that peace offer will be up. All who are in the kingdom will be gathered together, and all who are outside of the kingdom will be judged according to their works. This is the, the central thrust of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist, remember, he gets confused about this, and he thinks they're both supposed to happen at the exact same time. So he gets discouraged when he hears Jesus healing all these people, but he doesn't see Jesus judging the enemies of Israel. In John the Baptist, Jesus has to, has to explain it to him. He has to teach him, just so you know, it's the first time that I'm coming and I'm proclaiming peace. The second time I come is when judgment occurs. But the abiding message, the abiding truth, is that judgment is inevitably coming because the kingdom is inevitably coming. If the kingdom of God is encroaching, if it really is going to come, and if it really is on the doorstep as a, as a future reality for every single person in this world, the reality is that that either is very good or very bad. There is no neutrality in that, in that option. One of the ways you can think about it, if you uh, remember back to the Old Testament, uh, the book of Joshua, you have this incident where the people of Israel go into the promised land and they bump into the city of Jericho, and they're going to destroy the city of Jericho. But before they destroy it, they send spies into the city to scout it out. And those spies are hidden by Rahab. And Rahab defends the spies. And then she commissions them out another way. And she says, make me a promise. When you come, you'll spare me and my family. Later, a chapter later, the army of Israel comes, encircles Jericho, tears the walls down, and sacks the city. For Rahab, that's a great day. She no longer has to work as a prostitute. Her family is free. She now has independence, and she's going to be brought into the people of God. Great news for Rahab. Not so good if you are part of the armies of Jericho who tried to fight the people of Israel. They are inevitably coming. The reality is, though, there's some people who that's good news for and some people who that's really bad news for. It's the same with the kingdom of God. His kingdom is encroaching. And if you're part of his kingdom, if you're a wanderer and a stranger in this world, then you're part of God's kingdom. This means that you have a hope when the kingdom comes. But if you find great comfort in this world, if you love the things of this world, God's kingdom coming is going to bring about an end of the things of the world. And so that's going to be very bad news. 
John tells us in, in his epistle, 1 John, he says that the whole reason Jesus came to this world was to undo the works of Satan, undo the works of darkness, overthrow the powers of evil. So, if you love those things, or if you're part of that system, it's very bad if Jesus is going to overthrow those things. The point of the text is that there is no neutrality between Jesus and his kingdom, or you, you don't get to pick some, some halfway option where you say, I'm not so sure about Jesus, but I definitely don't want to be destroyed. The only option is allegiance or destruction. Those are the two options that you get. And as Christians, I think we can get into a lot of trouble with this because that presents a lot of, a lot of issues that we might face uh, when the world says, well, that doesn't seem particularly fair, or Jesus can't be particularly loving and expansive if he doesn't welcome everyone into his kingdom, regardless of their personal allegiance or their personal struggles. The reality is that his kingdom message is expansive. We saw that early in the text. Peace is proclaimed on every single house. Now the question is, how does that house respond? See this in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son into the world so that all who those who believe in him might have life in his name. See this right away in, God, in John's gospel right there. Now the question is, okay, so that's the reality, that there are those who believe and there are those who believe in Jesus Christ and those are the ones who are saved and Jesus is, is sent into the world to save people. But the reality is that not everyone believes in Jesus. And so thus the conclusion, not everyone is eventually saved. And we know that that's true because if it was not true, Jesus would stop his text right here in verse 11 and then we wouldn't have verse 12, 13, 14, and 15. But Luke does record 12, 13, 14, and 15 to seal into our minds the reality that rejection is not some temporary state. It's not some, some uh, temporary disadvantage. It is a permanent, lasting casting away from the kingdom of God. And he's going to bring to mind a couple of images. And for a Jewish uh, listener, for a Jewish hearer, these are the most uh, grotesque images of wickedness in the Old Testament. He says in verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So for, for the town that rejects the 72, when, when they don't listen to the message of peace, they reject it. It would be better on judgment day for them to have been in Sodom and Gomorrah partic participating in all those wicked acts. That city will be judged more, uh, less harshly than will this town that rejects the testimony of Jesus. And then he's going to go on and expand this, and he's going to expand and include cities that already fall into the category of this kind of rejection. Verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Tyre and Sidon, two Old Testament cities, two images of abject wickedness, abject hatred of God, love for the world. These are cities that are known in the Jewish mind as, as being wicked, just like Sodom, but they're in a different time period. Sodom is in the time period of Genesis, Tyre and Sidon. That's in the time period of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're often referred to as being wicked cities. So a Jewish person hears this and they say, well, Chorazin and Bethsaida, we know those cities. It would be better to have been part of Tyre and Sidon in that nation on Judgment Day than it would be to be part of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Why? It'll be worse for them because they've rejected this offer of peace, which is something that Tyre and Sidon did not get. Sodom does not get an offer of peace, but these towns that have the 72 do get an offer of peace. To reject the offer of peace heaps upon someone more wrath, more judgment, more uh, damnation than does just sinning itself. So sinning causes judgment, but so does rejecting an offer of peace despite the sin. That's kind of a strange and uh, something we don't often think about when we think about the ministry of Jesus. Now, I will remind you that in this text, and if you have a Bible, this will be in red letters. This is not the Apostle Paul. This is not some later commentator coming in and adding all this language of judgment. We get this language from Jesus himself. He's the one who says this. And then he says, verse 14, but it would be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, now this is a text we've already been told about in Luke's gospel. Therese and Bethsaida haven't really been mentioned. But Capernaum, this is where he's been doing his ministry, right? Luke chapter 4, all the way through. He's been doing his ministry basically in this region. So all the miracles we've seen so far have been happening there. 
And he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Your text might say, uh, you will not be exalted into heaven, or you shall not be exalted into heaven. The point is, the, the text is, it's expecting a negative answer. So some translations translate it as a definitive statement as opposed to a question. But the point is the same. You won't be, and we see that from the following sentence, because you shall be brought down to Hades. So the reality is that there's only two options, ascending to heaven or going down to Hades. There's only two options, peace or rejection. Uh, there's only two options, uh, damnation or victory and, and hope. Those are the only two outcomes in this text, framed a bunch of different ways, but you see that throughout. Now, there's a lot of, let's say, problems or questions that might arise in our hearts as we reread this text. If you're a Christian, you've been reading this your whole life, and this is a teaching you grew up with, you might say, I understand that, I accept it, but I don't know if I could argue with someone who hates God or rejects his word on the, on the grounds of this and convince them that this is actually good news. I don't know that I could do that. Well, the reality is, I think uh, C.S. Lewis frames this argument really well, and uh, he, has, he has a lot of elaborate narrative depictions of, of these ideas, but his, one of the points he makes in his narrative writing is that someone who's outside of the kingdom of God, even if post-judgment they were given an option to repent and come back into the kingdom, the reality is they would still reject it and choose judgment. They would still do that. Now, you can go on as to speculate as to why, but the point is simple, and the text tells us this. They don't accept God's rule, God's authority, God's dominion. And so what God does is he casts them out of his rule, authority, and dominion, and he puts him under his judgment. Because the reality is, you see this in verse 9 and in verse 11, the kingdom of God inevitably does rule and reign over all the world. God is, in fact, sovereign over every single inch of the universe. And so because that is true, if you don't want to submit to his lordship, you don't really have a choice. That doesn't mean you're going to be, so that means when the kingdom comes and it inevitably does come, you either are going to rejoice at that or you're not. But the reality is there's only one king. And this is actually good news because if there wasn't one king, we would have no morality as we know it today. We would have no uh, code of right and wrong. It is Jesus who says that my image is in man, so you shouldn't kill people. My image is in people, so you shouldn't hurt your neighbor or steal from them or, or violate people. You shouldn't do stuff like that. Why? Because my image is in man. He tells us morality. He tells us how to act right and wrong. And every other worldview that tries to make sense of that information falls short of being able to explain right and wrong, good and bad, morality and immorality. No other worldview has categories like this. So to reject Jesus' kingdom on the grounds of a moral, a moral claim would be to assume that you have a moral claim over the kingdom of God apart from the revelation of God's word. But what we have in Scripture is both that God is good and just, and that he's holy and he cannot abide with sinful people. And so the conclusion, he offers a free pardon to anyone who would accept it, but not everyone does accept it. People reject God's free pardon. Now there's another thing that comes out of the text, which is what about those cities who never were offered God's free pardon? You see this in Sodom. You see this in Tyre and Sidon. Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a famous text in Genesis 19. Jesus tells us that it would be better to be part of Sodom and its judgment than to be part of a city that had the revelation and peace offer of God and its judgment. Because Sodom, although they sinned and they were deserving of judgment, because they were never offered peace, because they never had that opportunity to reject it, their judgment will be of a less severe variety than the judgment of a city that did hear God's peace pardon and didn't accept it. You see this as well with Chorazon uh, and Bethsaida. It would be better to be part of Tyre and Sidon's judgment, who never received God's peace offer, than to be part of a city that did receive it and rejected it. We conclude this today as well. There are people in the world, still today, unreached people, who have never heard God's offer of peace, his proclamation of the gospel. So what we should not conclude is that those people are somehow going to just ascend into heaven just because they never heard the gospel. Their judgment will be certainly less severe than those who exist in America and regularly reject the gospel or those who exist all across the world regularly hearing the gospel preached and the message of God proclaimed and reject it. But we should not conclude that they are thereby going to escape the judgment. Romans 1 tells us that the revelation of God is sufficient to condemn people for their sin. Although they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God or give thanks to him, but instead 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God's revelation, just as part of creation, is sufficient for all men to be aware of God and to be aware that they should obey him. But it's not sufficient to save. Hence, the urgency of Paul in Romans, how beautiful are the feet that go and preach the gospel, how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? Hence, Jesus' urgency here, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. The point is that there would be no source of urgency, no need for urgency to get the gospel out if it was only the message of the gospel that condemned people to hell, their response or rejection of it. The point is people already in this world are standing under the judgment of God. That's the reality of the fall of sin. So the gospel is the only means of escaping that. Now, it comes at kind of a risky price because if you hear the gospel and you reject it, it's worse than if you never heard it at all. You'll still be judged, but it's worse if you hear it and reject it. But at least you have the opportunity to have peace with God. Now, what Jesus makes clear elsewhere in his scripture is that this is not a neutral thing that he does. He sends his gospel out and he sends his spirit out ahead of the gospel so that hearts would be prepared to receive fertilely the word of God. This is good news because if that did not happen, there would be no one who accepted the offer of peace. Everyone would reject it wholesale. So we can account for those who accept God's peace offer by those who have been prepared by God's spirit to accept it. And we can say that if it were not for God's peace offer, no one would be at peace with God. All people stand under God's condemnation. The thrust of the text is that there is a real judgment, a real condemnation, and a real offer of peace. And those things are both true because of the initial truth claim that the kingdom of God is near and is impending. That being true, praying, for example, as we're going to see in a couple chapters, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a prayer, in some sense, that is going to bring judgment upon some people and salvation to other people. But we're told to pray that by Jesus, and not as though it's a bad thing, because it's a, it's a means of celebration for the Christian. Now, there's something else that is, let's say, present in this text, and, and that is this kind of same teaching in verse 16 of the one who hears you, this is to the 72, also hears me, that's Jesus, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and, rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The point uh, essentially is the same as in verse uh, Uh, sorry, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, the point there is the same. Jesus' message, his words, are just as binding and authoritative as those same words spoken by anyone who carries them forward. So any of the 72 who share that message, it would be, and rejecting them is just like rejecting Jesus himself. People, I think, often today speculate and say things like, well, if Jesus himself would show up to my college campus, to my friend, to my coworker, they would surely accept him. But the point is that if they're not accepting your message of the gospel, Jesus is not going to fare any better with them than you would. Because it's the same message. It's the same call to repentance. It's the same call of hope. It's the same thing. So rejecting you is rejecting Jesus. But the good news is accepting the message that you would carry forward, the gospel, is accepting Jesus. And that's good because that's a, that's a real possibility of peace that someone could have without ever themselves having seen Jesus face to face. Jesus tells us in John's gospel that Thomas, blessed are you for believing, but blessed are those who do not see and believe what they have heard. That is everyone who's believed post the apostolic age because we haven't seen the same things, we haven't seen and experienced the same miracles, but we have believed by faith through the power of the Spirit And we have received peace with God as a result. We can have a real peace because of the proclamation of the gospel, the reading of the gospel out loud. Any way the gospel gets into your heart and calls you to repentance and you can legitimately respond is a means by which peace is offered. And that's good news because that peace message goes out everywhere where the gospel goes out. It's the central mission of the church. Now, there's... uh, let's say, one final, let's say, uh, unifying theme in this text. And the unifying theme that we see here is this, this image of an inevitable harvest that's coming, and later in the passage it's called the kingdom of God coming close. The language of harvest, I think we often only think about it in a positive sense, meaning we think about the harvest as something that's good, 
when the harvest comes, whatever is harvested is saved or spared. But in, that's just not true. And we, we know this because in Luke's gospel, we were told earlier of a harvest example where the harvest is taken in and then what happens is the wheat and the chaff are separated from one another. The point here is that the harvest image is not just people being saved. It's the judgment. The harvest is the judgment. The harvest is plentiful, so there's a lot of people who are going to be judged. The laborers who go into the, into the harvest field, they're going to bring about some restoration, some, uh, some transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But the point is that the harvest will inevitably happen. And at the time of the harvest, we're told in uh, Luke's parable of the sower, that that is when the wheat and the chafe are separated from one another. It is not before that time. So when workers go out into the field, go out into the harvest, they're going for the legitimate possibility of tilling plants and and making them uh, habitable for the kingdom. They're making them harvestable. But the point is, the harvest is inevitable. Everyone's going to be harvested. Now the question is whether that harvest concludes with a separation into the good or a separation into the bad. Same thing you see later in the text. The kingdom of God is inevitable. That's either good if you're part of the kingdom or bad if you're not part of the kingdom. And Jesus, in in reflecting on those two truths, concludes with anyone who's outside of the kingdom, it's a a sorry state, a woeful state for them. It says, woe to you, Teresa and Bethsaida. And that is, I think, the heart posture that Paul adopts when he writes about those who are outside of the kingdom. I think that's the heart posture we have to have as believers for those who are outside of the kingdom. A real, genuine brokenness for those who are led astray by the forces of darkness and who cannot see God's marvelous light and don't appreciate it and don't understand it and don't love it. Because if we have that understanding that there, it's, a, it's a sorry state for someone to see God's truth and hate it and reject it, I think it will change our engagement with how we share the gospel with people. There are certain people who are so abstinent in their rejection of the gospel, so hateful and spiteful of God's truth, that the conclusion is that you wipe the dust off your shoes and you say judgment is upon you because of your statement, your condition, your confession. But that's not every single person that we interact with. There's a whole host of people who are blinded, who are led astray, who are enslaved to the powers of darkness. And so the initial heart posture is not one of hammering through and trying to get the gospel in. The initial heart posture is one of uh, lament, one of uh, internal anguish for the lost. It's one that puts us in a position where we can minister to them as bleeding hearts, ministering to people who don't know God's truth and don't love him, and they don't love him because they don't know him. And if we know that that's the reality, I think it affects our engagement with non-believers. And for those of us who love God's word, love God's truth, who are zealous for God's truth, I think that's a particularly on-the-nose reflection of this text. Because if you're like me, this is just my sin struggle, my default is to be very hard-nosed for the truth of God's word, but not so good about engaging in the heart posture of brokenness over people who reject it. I can find myself often bitter and angry and frustrated that people don't hear God's word, but not sorry and lamentful and prayerful for those people. And this text tells us that Jesus' heart posture in reflecting on all these things is one of sadness and mourning and great trepidation in his character over those who are going to die outside of the kingdom of God. And that's something we need to capture from the text. There's an urgency which we capture early on in the text, and there's a brokenness over those outside of the kingdom we capture later in the text. And I think both of those need to accompany our proclamation of peace with God that is possible. Because at the end of the day, it's good news. It's really good news for those who accept it. But it is really disastrous news for those who reject it. And lest we call disaster upon people and we ourselves aren't aware of the amazing gift of God's grace and mercy that we ourselves were bought with a price into his kingdom. The point of the whole counsel of scripture is that God's salvation to us is a grace gift lest we elevate ourselves over others and think of our minds as more intelligent or our faculties as more rational or ourselves as more enlightened than other people. That is not the thrust. The thrust is that God has been gracious to us. And so we don't elevate ourselves over those fallen. We don't elevate ourselves over those who are blind. Rather, we plead on our knees for them before the King of Kings 
because he is willing to send more laborers into the field. He is a willing God. He is a giving God. And so we pray to him knowing that that is true about his character. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. Your truth is uh, striking. It is uh, exhilarating. It's clarifying. But Lord, above all, it's comforting. It brings us down to our knees before you to recognize that at one point in time, we were outside of your kingdom, bound in darkness, unaware of your glorious light, that we were rebels. But Lord, you tell us that it is while we were rebels that you saved us. You saved Abraham in his rebellious state. You saved Noah in his rebellious state. You saved David in his rebellious state. Lord, you save each and every part of your kingdom while they are still rebels. And that is a testimony to your goodness. Lord, let, we, let us never forget your heart posture towards us before we knew you and while we were outside of you. And Lord, help that to be something that permeates into our hearts, into our beings, into our souls, that when we share your truth, when we proclaim it, when we evangelize, when we uh, study your word, when we just uh, imbibe it in our lives, would you help the heart posture of brokenness, of, uh, of pain, of agony, of uh, sorrow, would you help that to be something that accompanies our witnessing? That we would not be so zealous for your truth that we would begin to hate people who bear your image. And we would not be so zealous for your truth that we would begin to uh, cast people out or write them off because they've rejected your truth. That we would always be pleading while there is still time for people to come to a knowledge of you. You tell us that one day there will be no more time. The, the time will be up. The clock will be done. And you will come again in your glory and in your majesty. And we long for that day. But Lord, while you tarry, would you give us a heart that reflects this appropriate moment that we're in. To long for your salvation for all who are outside of your kingdom. To come to a knowledge of you. To love your word. To love every part of you. And that we would be the ambassadors of peace for your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.